All right. Well, hey, thanks a lot for being here tonight. It's uh, what a crazy day. The uh, schedule got all messed up. I guess we got some mud out there in the woods and kind of put things behind. But uh, hey, good, good to be in the house of the Lord, especially when it's outdoors like this. So what a what a wonderful day. Lord, thanks a lot for today. Thanks for the opportunity. We say it week after week. Never get tired of it. We get to be at a racetrack. We get to worship you in the center of your creation, doing what you created us to do, what you put in our hearts to do. Settle us down right now, Lord. Just meet us in this place. Give me the words to say. And uh, may we draw close to you in these next few minutes. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I get to say, I say it a lot, and I don't know, surely I have said it this year, but I know I'm always saying on purpose for a purpose. God created you on purpose for a purpose. He has a plan for your life. This year we're going through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and so it's it's really neat to see how the story unfolds. And we've been looking at uh, we've been looking at some individuals in the Bible, but we've also been looking at the overall story and how the story of God unfolds and how He had a plan from the very beginning. But in the beginning, He created us for relationship with Him, and of course that all got messed up and got turned around and inside out. But uh, but in order to restore His creation, He's used some people, some big name people like Abraham. I mean, I know he started out as a normal dude, but when you hear Abraham, you're like, man, that's that's the father of, of Israel. That's, that's, that's this really big guy. You hear about Joseph, and you're like, man, I could never do what Joseph did. And you hear about Moses, and yeah, maybe he started out as a normal guy, but man, I could never be like Moses. Well, I, I've told the story before, and I'm reminded of when I was in the army. Uh, I, was, I was stationed down at uh, Fort Hood, Texas. And when I processed into brigade headquarters there, they pulled my file. And they said, oh, wow, it looks like you've got some really good test scores here. We're going to pull you into admin up here at brigade headquarters. And I was like, no, this, that is the last thing I wanted to have happen. Because when I went to the recruiter and I was at NEP station, they said, hey, your ASFAB scores, whatever that is, you, you tested really high. I was like, well, I know I'm a good guesser. You know, if I don't know the answer, I just guess C. So I got these really high scores. And they're like, well, you're you're able to do anything in the Army. Any any job that you want to do, it's there for you. I said, well, I want to be infantry. They're like, no, no, no. If you had the bare minimum test score, that's all you would qualify for is infantry. So you have the maximum score. What do you want to be? I said, I want to be infantry. They're like, no, 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 no. I said, look, I'm going to get up. I'm going to walk out of this office if you don't give me infantry. I want to be airborne infantry. I want to jump out of airplanes. And they're like, all right, fine. We'll let you do it. You know what? I, to this day, I haven't jumped out of an airplane. That recruiter lied to me. <laughs> I got down to Fort Benning, though. I went through infantry school. And they said, all right, we're sending you to Fort Hood, Texas. Mechanized infantry. It's like, that is not what I want. I go in. They're like, brigade headquarters. You'll be part of admin staff. I was like, that sounds not fantastic. But here I am. I ended up being, I did my job, I did it to the best of my ability, uh, applied myself, next thing you know, I was assigned, I was, I was enlisted, which everybody said you ought to be an officer when you go in, um, that's great advice, I don't always listen to people's advice, and so I learned that one the hard way, but I was enlisted, and uh, I got to be about E4, and they gave me the opportunity to drive for the, uh, the S3 officer, the operations officer, he's the guy that puts the battle plan together, and so I got assigned a Humvee just for me. And I was assigned to be Major Dragon's driver. His last name was Dragon. Legitimate last name. He was, he's Ranger Tab. Hardcore guy. One day we were out in the woods and we were going to go up. Uh, we wanted to get up on top of this overlook in Fort Hood, Texas. The, the Corps of Engineers was going to lay a bridge, just a training exercise. We wanted to go up on top of this mountain and overlook and see how this whole thing un- unfolded. And I said, all right, well, there's this trail on the map. 
We'll just follow this trail. Says it takes us up where we want to go. He said, do it, LeMaster. By the way, there's uh, two other guys that want to follow us, an Air Force guy and whatever. And I said, all right. So I pulled their drivers aside. And I said, you guys just follow me down this tank trail, this old tank trail. You just do what I do. And so we get to the bottom of the mountain, and it was all washed out. Big old gully right there. Well, these Humvees are, what, six feet wide? So I just straddled it. And when the gully ran out, I just kind of, I did that Daytona bank. And I just swept around and back up onto the trail. No big deal. Didn't even look at my mirror, see what was going on. And I start climbing this hill. And I'm climbing this hill. And Major Dragon sitting next to me, and I got two captains in the back behind me. The guy sitting behind me was Captain Howard. Captain Howard was a very dark-skinned African-American. Black. I mean, he was really, really dark-skinned black guy. So I got these guys, and we're going up this hill, and it keeps getting steeper and steeper and steeper, and finally, at the very top, it's all washed out, and it's just a, it's just a, it's a wall. And the thought's going through my mind that we ain't going to make this, but I want to try it. <laughs> and so I start to put the throttle down, and Major Dragon waves me off. I was like, all right, so I put on the brakes, and when I put the brakes on, we were so such a steep angle that we started sliding backwards. And we came to a stop, and we're just kind of teetering right there, and there's nowhere to go because you can't go forward, and there's the trail is only eight foot wide or whatever. I look over at Major Dragon. I look in the back, and I look behind me, and old Captain Howard, he's as white as I am. He was scared out of his gourd. I said, all right, hang on, sirs. And I let off the brake, and I got some momentum, and I yanked the wheel, I stomped the brakes at the same time, and I whipped this around, and we're facing straight down this hill, and we come to a stop, and we're pointed the way we want to be now. And those Humvees that were following me were at that gully down there, and they're just, they got one wheel here, one wheel here, both of them lined up one beside, behind the other, and they're just rocking back and forth, about to flip over. And Major Dragon looked over at me, he's like, where did you learn to drive? I don't know, sir. I just grew up riding dirt bikes. It's all about line selection, and it's just what I do. He said, well, you're the best driver I've ever had. And when I got out of the Army and time of end of station there, uh, he gave me a little going away um, speech and, you know, really touched me. I was the best driver he ever had. and I, I was really honored by that. Well, wouldn't you know it, 10, 11, I think 12 years later, uh, well, eight years later, I was working for Yamaha, and they came out with this thing called the Rhino. And I know we laugh about the Rhino nowadays, but in 2004 when the Rhino came out, that was the baddest thing ever. I mean, we'd never seen a UTV like a Rhino. I mean, everybody's used to driving mules and rangers, and you wouldn't ever take those on the trail. And next thing you know, GNCC starts racing these UTVs, and they got Rhinos, and they got they got Razors. And, and for their very first UTV race was Union, South Carolina in 2008. I lived in Knoxville, Tennessee at the time. I said, man, that sounds like a lot of fun. I've been driving the wheels off of this uh, this Rhino. I'm going to go over there. I'm going to see what I can do. So being that I was in a Rhino, I was on the last row, and all these Razors were ahead of me. Well, uh, when the flag went, man, I went. And I lapped everybody in my class. I lapped all the way up to second place. I lapped my way in, well inside of the top ten out of the 60 entries that were there. I just killed it. I absolutely crushed it. And uh, the next day I went out there and I rode my dirt bike in the morning race. And I got lapped by the leader of my race. I had no talent on two wheels, but on four wheels, I know how to drive. And the whole point of that story is that that is what brought me to GNCC. You see, God has a plan and he has a purpose. I didn't know it back in, uh, back in the 90s when I was driving for Major Dragon and hot rodding my Humvee around town and so forth. But uh, God had a plan there. And he gave me a unique talent, and he gave me a gift, and he had a plan to use it. And as an individual, when I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ, and I said, all right, God, I am all in, 
God's like, great, man, because I got this thing going. <laughs> I got this globe spinning. I got a great big master plan, and you're part of it. And I'm going to send you to the coolest race series in the entire world, and you're going to be the chaplain there. I had no idea. In 2008, I had no idea that that's what I was going to do. But at the end of 2008, John Ayers has been doing uh, chapel service on GNCC, and uh, he said, hey, man, Moto Tees is expanding. We're going to Outdoor Nationals. I'm not going to be able to do the GNCCs next year. I don't know who's going to be the chaplain. And, like, a light shined from heaven. The angels sang. I was like, well, that's me. <laughs> been here ever since. But get to be the chaplain on GNCC because God had a plan. And as an individual, I got to step into that. So we've been going through the ages and through the pages, 66 different books, 40 different authors, 1,500 years in the making. This is the Bible, the Word of God. It's the story from Genesis to Revelation about how God had a plan and how he's been putting this plan into action. That's what we've been studying this year on GNCC, and today we're going to get to see how some individuals get to live into the greater story. But to bring you up to speed, that greater story started in the beginning. And if you've missed any of these chapel services, you're welcome to go onto iTunes or SoundCloud and look up Team Faith or Chuck Lee Master and uh, and catch up with some of your windshield driving time there. You'll be able to catch up on some of these because we've covered some fascinating things. In the beginning, God created man, created us for relationship with him, came down in the cool of the day, talked to Adam and Eve. Of course, mankind kind of messed it up. When Adam and Eve were created, there was only one option for bad. And the reason there was even an option there is because we were created for relationship and you can't have love without free will. You can't have free will without choice. So everything was good. One bad option. They took it. They completely inverted the the created order. According to Paul in Romans, he says that we were all born into sin. Because of Adam, we were all born into sin. We were born with nothing but bad options. There's only one good option, and that's Jesus. And when we accept Jesus... We go back to that created order. We're looking forward to the day that God restores His order on this earth. From there, though, in order to get to Jesus, God had a plan. He had a purpose. And He pulled Abraham aside. He said, hey, I'm going to do a thing through you. Lots of people, lots of land. The whole world's going to be blessed. So Abraham had, had a son who had two sons. One of them had 12 sons. The story of Joseph, how, the, how Abraham's family was about 80 people. And they moved to the land of Goshen. Right outside, of, right, right in the northernmost part of Egypt. And there they're protected. They're not intermingling with all the Canaanites. They're not intermingling with the Egyptians. They're just themselves. And they grow as a family. And they grow and they grow and they grow. 400 years later, they're a nation, lots of people. And now they need lots of land. And so they're enslaved in Egypt. And God raises up Moses and leads them out of the promised land through the Passover. The Passover, we got to preach on the... We got to look at the Passover on Passover weekend. Like the next morning was Sunday, Passover Sunday. And we got to talk about how Jesus came riding into Jerusalem with all the sheep that were going to be sacrificed over Passover. And how because of Jesus, we could have eternal life, the ultimate Passover. So the, the angel of death passes over and they go out into the wilderness and they're headed towards the promised land. Lots of, people, lots of land is coming up next. They go out in the wilderness and they stop at Mount Sinai. And they get the law. Oh no, 613 laws that we have to go through for chapel service. How are we going to do this? Well, it turns out that the law is amazing. As Paul explains it in Galatians, he says that the law is like a tutor that gets the children to school. If Paul were here today, he would say the law is like a set of guardrails that keeps you on the road, keeps you on the path so that you can arrive at your final destination. You see, the law was put down so that the, the children of Israel, so the nation of Israel 
would know who God was and that they would arrive at the destination that he needed them to arrive at so that his son Jesus could be born into the line of David, into the line of Abraham, and be that blessing for the entire world, that third part of the promise, right? So Moses gets the law, not understanding that there's three parts. There's the moral law, there's the ceremonial law, there's the civil law. You know, when you when you get when you get to look at that and you get to break it down, you find out that it's really quite fascinating and how that really did protect the nation in order to accomplish God's purpose. But where we're at today, Moses comes down off the off the mountain. He's got the he's got the Ten Commandments that that God has written. He's got the six hundred and three other little laws that go along with it. He comes down off the mountain, and this is before. This is before God had instituted and said anything about the Ark of the Covenant or having any kind of a special place for for him to uh, holy of holies. There's none of that yet. Moses comes down off the mountain. He's out there in the wilderness. And so in order to have a meeting place for Moses to meet with God, he has a tent. He has a fancy name for this tent. It's called the Tent of Meetings. And it says that when Moses would go to the Tent of Meetings, everybody would come out of their tent. And they would stand at the door of their tent and they would watch Moses go into the tent of meetings to meet with God. And when Moses would go in there, a cloud would come down and cover the tent of meetings and God would go in there and would meet would meet with Moses. Matter of fact, it says in Exodus 33 that thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. What were we created for? Relationship. And Moses got to go in and meet with God face to face as a man speaks with a friend. When Moses turned again to the camp, his assistant, Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. This is the first time that the name Joshua has come up in our narrative. Now, if you're familiar with, with, with the story, if you're familiar with church culture, you know that Joshua is a pretty important fella in the Old Testament. But this is our first mention of him, is he's an assistant to Moses. And it says that when Moses would leave the tent of meetings, Joshua would stay in there. What was he doing in there? We don't know. doesn't say what he was doing in there. Matter of fact, I've read some commentaries on this to find out, well, what was he doing in there? The commentators don't even mention this because this is just such a footnote in the story of Moses. They don't even mention Joshua. There was one commentator that said, well, Joshua was probably in there cleaning up the place so that it would be ready for the next meeting for Moses. And I thought, is that right? How many styrofoam cups did Moses and God leave laying around in there? You know what I think it was? We were created for relationship. Joshua got to observe his leader, Moses, having relationship with God, and he desired the same for himself. I'm reading into it. But where do we go when times are tough, when we want to meet with God? Where's the place that we go? You're in the hospital and things are tough. Where do you go? You go to that little chapel. You go to the sanctuary. Just a place to meet with God. We were designed for relationship. Solomon said that God has placed eternity in the hearts of man. We long for that relationship with God. And Joshua, in that tent of meetings, desiring relationship with his creator. I can say that with confidence because we know the rest of the story, how Joshua rose up and he's a pretty uh, pretty influential guy here. But right here at this point, he's just an assistant. He's an Aaron boy. Aaron, Moses' brother, is actually Aaron's uh, is Moses' uh, assistant with a capital A. Aaron's the important assistant. Joshua, he's just the Aaron boy at this point. But God's leading the Israelites through the wilderness. They're on their way to the land of Canaan. Okay, so you got Egypt over here. They're on the Sinai Peninsula that's between Egypt and the Promised Land. When God led them through, God led them to the Red Sea. What's interesting is if you look at a map, 
you find out that they could have gone north and they could have gone south and they could have missed that Red Sea. But God led them to the Red Sea so that God could do a thing. You remember that? How Moses, he, there's the Red Sea in front of him. Pharaoh's changed his mind. He's going to charge after him. Certain death in front of him. Probable death behind him. And, and God says, stretch out your staff. They go through on dry land. And God collapses the water on Pharaoh's army. Never saw that coming. Like, wow, we're going to be free. Free indeed. Never have to worry about the Egyptian army chasing after us. That's a pretty amazing thing. That's a God thing. Well, God, after he led them through the Red Sea, he takes them out to the wilderness. Instead of going up here to Canaan, he brings them south on the Sinai Peninsula. Down here is Egypt, Sinai Peninsula. goes to Mount Sinai, gets the law, and Canaan's up here. And now God says, okay, we're about ready to go into the, we're going to go into the promised land. Get ready. And he tells Moses, he says, at this point, he says, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people. And so Moses selects one man from each tribe. There's 12 tribes. Gets one guy from each tribe. From the tribe of Judah, he gets a guy named Caleb. From Ephraim, he gets Joshua, the son of Nun, his actual assistant. There are 10 others, and you're familiar with the story, I'm sure. These 12 spies, they go up in the land of Canaan. They scope it out. They come back, and they bear a good report. They say, hey, we saw the land. It's indeed a land flowing with milk and honey. Matter of fact, check out these grapes that we brought back. They had taken a cluster of grapes that were so large that they had to be suspended on a pole and carried between two guys, the, the pole set on their shoulders. They come back, and they say, man, there is a lot of good up in that land. Milk, <laughs> milk and honey. It's flowing with the good stuff, but they give the report, but there are giants in the land and we are like grasshoppers compared to these guys. And the people of Israel, they're dismayed. They're like, oh man, I cannot believe this. Would that we have died in Egypt. <laughs> Sounds kind of crazy. Like, haven't you, didn't you just, didn't you see what God did at the Red Sea? Didn't you see what happened as soon as you got out in the wilderness? Well, they were hungry. God gives them manna, gives them quail. They were thirsty. God gives them water from a rock. He promises them a promised land. And as soon as adversity comes along, they're like, oh man, I wish that we had just died in Egypt. Don't understand that until you face temptation of your own. I don't know about you, but I've, I've, uh, I've, I've had some temptations in my life. Some things, some bad habits that I've had to break, some addictions to break. Oftentimes, it seems like the easiest way to get rid of temptation is to give in to it. Oh, that we would go back to Egypt. It was easier there. At least we had food there. At least we had water there. Oh, man, this is hard. You know what? When I said I was going to stop drinking and I was going to deal with alcoholism, I thought that God was going to come down and just touch me and I never had that desire again. This is hard. It'd be way easier to go back to living the way that I used to live. But there were two guys. There were Caleb and Joshua that said, No, 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 no. This is hard, but God is with us. You love the races, man, especially when you see uh, show haulers racing. So Joshua and Caleb, were those were, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation, the people of Israel, the land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, He will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land. They are bred for us. <laughs> Their protections removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Said, kill them. We don't like what these guys are saying. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And God showed up 
and they were not able to stone Joshua and Caleb. Isn't that how it goes? You're having a hard time. Man, I just I ought to just give up. I ought to just go back in. But then you show up someplace like this, and there's a crazy guy saying, you were created on purpose and for a purpose, and you just want to punch him in the face. <laughs> like, no, I want to be miserable. But no, God has more for you. He's got a greater plan. And Joshua and Caleb are like, God's plan is greater than yours. He can do this. He's promised it to us. And God says, uh, God pulls Moses aside. He says, you know what? I'm tired of these people. I'll just kill them all. I'll start over with you. And Moses is like, no, I'll work with the people a little bit, see if we can get on the right path. And God says, okay, but these rebels are not going into the wilderness. They're, they're, they're not going into the promised land. Matter of fact, God said, for every day that the spies were in the land of Canaan, I'm going to add a year to their life out here in the wilderness. So 40 days, it's going to be 40 years. In this wilderness, this generation shall come to a full end, and here they will die. So God pronounced judgment on the people of Israel because they did not want to go up into the promised land that He had promised them. Lots of people, lots of land, go get it! No, we want to go back to Egypt, alright? If you guys are going to be stubborn and stiff-necked, you're just going to die out here in the wilderness, and your children will be the ones that go across the Jordan River, and they'll take the promised land. Moses actually could have gone on. As you know, Moses didn't get to go into the promised land. seems like later on, after this part of the story, Moses has a little temper problem in front of the people. And uh, he disobeys God by striking a rock instead of speaking to it. And God says, you know, Moses, you've done a lot of good. She ain't going to go into the promised land. It's about time to pass that baton. You know who Moses passed that baton to? That little small-time assistant that used to stay in the tent of meetings. Joshua. The son of Nun. The guy who went up into the land of Canaan and said, we can do it. And everybody said, shut up, you little runt. We can't do it. No, we can. Joshua is the one that gets to take over and lead the people into the promised land. He's the scout who, I love it. He's the scout who faced the impossible odds. And he said, he said they are bred for us. And I'm a hungry grasshopper. Let's go get them. So now he finally gets his chance. Forty years later, after the death of Moses, this is Joshua chapter 1, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, he said, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over the Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving you to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot touches, I have given to you just as I promised to Moses. Part of God's commission to Joshua in this passage God says, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. It's a verse that we often see, that we memorize, and we see it hanging on the wall. Do not be afraid. Take courage. I'm God. Interesting times around here sometimes. We find out actually later on in the narrative of Joshua, we find out in chapter 14 that Caleb says, hey man, I'm 85 years old. I feel just as young and energetic as I did 40, 45 years ago when I came over here the first time. I'm sure that that is true of Joshua. God had his hand on both of them. And so in Joshua chapter 2, Joshua sent two men secretly from the city that they were living in. And I'm not kidding you here. The name of the city was Shittim. That's a fun one to talk to your Sunday school teacher about, okay? It's genuinely in there. They lived in the land of, in the city of Shittim. All right? Now, that's funny for us in our English language to say. However, when they were out, when the people were out in the wilderness in the, in, in the, the Sinai Peninsula right here, there were actually some cities, there were some kings and some small, some small nations that would come up against the land of Israel. 
And Israel wiped them off the map every single time that somebody came up against them. Israel took care of business. They took care of business with kings like uh, Arad and Sihon and Og, the five kings of Midian, whose headquarter was the land of the city of Shittim, which was right on the Jordan River, right across from where they needed to go. The very first city that they would encounter across the Jordan River would be Jericho. And so, so Joshua, Joshua takes two men as spies, and he says, go into the land, especially to Jericho. And there they went, and they came to the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. So he says, all right, I'm going to send you two guys to go spy out the land, pay special attention to Jericho. Now, i got to point out the obvious here. These guys were not very good spies because it was no secret that they were there. I mean, as soon as they get there, the king finds out, the king of Jericho finds out that, hey, there are spies in the city here to check us out and see what it will take to defeat us. And the king's like, well, go get them. And so the the men of, of Jericho come and they knock on Rahab's door. They're like, hey, we hear that there are men from Israel staying here at your house. And she's like, well, yeah, there were some men here. There were two of them here, but they left already. When in reality, she had hid them up on the roof and put them underneath the straw that was across her roof. She says, they were here. You just missed them. They went that way. If you hurry, you can catch them. So sure enough, the men of Jericho, they leave Rahab alone. And they run out and they go try and chase down these men from Israel. And Rahab pulls the men aside. She says, like, look. I've done good for you. And she says, actually, she says, she came up to them on the roof and she said to the men, said, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen on us and all the inhabitants of the land melt away from you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. She says, no doubt you guys are going to defeat this land. I believe that. Everybody else around here is afraid, but I'm helping you out. So you guys need to help me out. What I like about Rahab here is that she believed, she believed God. She believed there was a God. She said, you're God. She, she acknowledges that there's a God, but she believed in God. And there is a big difference. Do you know what the difference is? Believing that there is a God is one thing. Everybody seems to agree that there's a God. But to believe in God means that you believe that God will do what God says He will do. You see, when you believed in Jesus as your Savior, you believed that He was the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Him. She said, I believe not only that that your God is the true God, but I believe in Him because I believe He will do what He said He will do. I believe that He has given you this land and that none of us can stand up against you. So I'm on your side. What are you going to do about it? And they said, all right, I'll tell you what. You hang a scarlet cord from your window of your house. Her house was on the wall of Jericho. Her window was facing the outside wall, facing outside of the wall. So she hung this scarlet cord in her, in her, in her window. She let the men down through the window by a rope. She hung this scarlet cord in her window. And the men said, all right, anything that's in this room when we come back is protected. We will protect you. If you want to bring your mom, your dad, your brothers, your sisters, your nephews, your nieces, that's fine, but they got to be in this room. Outside of this room, no promises. And by the way, Rahab, if you double-cross us, all bets are off. She's like, no, no, no problem. i got the scarlet cord in here. My mom, my dad, my whole family is going to be in here when you guys come. And so the spies come back. They give, uh, they give a good report. says that... Uh, says to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands. All the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. 
And so in Joshua chapter 3, God says, all right, the time has come. You guys are going to go across the Jordan River. The way you're going to do it is the priests are going to go before you with the Ark of the Covenant. They're going to put their feet in the water. This is yet another God thing. You remember that Red Sea crossing that we talked about briefly a little bit ago. How they came to the Red Sea and God said, Moses, stretch out your staff, the water parts. Some of the people that are in the midst right now, they were children during that time. So they remember a first-hand account, but there's been a lot of of stories going around. Hey, you remember that time? Well, now God is revealing himself to this new generation. He says, your priests are going to go and they're going to get their feet wet. It's no secret that I'm going to do a thing, but the priests have to get their feet wet. They have to have stake in this this time. You see, the Red Sea was all about God doing what God's going to do. It was a surprise. Like Moses, y'all are stuck. Stretch out your staff. I got a trick for you. Now they're coming to the Jordan River, and they're like, you guys have a part in this. You're going to get your feet wet. The priests go in. The water stands up. All of Israel crosses the Jordan River on dry land. The priests come up out of the riverbed. The water flows again. And now they're on the, on the Jericho side of the Jordan River. And if you recall this story, God tells them to do something really weird. But it includes every single person in the nation of Israel. Every single person gets a part of the greater story. For seven days, they march around Jericho. Once a day, complete silence. Second day, they march around the city of Jericho. Complete silence. Third day, same thing. Seventh day, they march around it seven times. And on the, at the end of the seventh lap, they blow the trumpets, they cry out with a loud shout and the walls come tumbling down all except for Rahab's wall her wall stands still she's spared the whole city is destroyed but what's what I want to bring to your attention is that when we fight those addictions and those pains and those relationships that we just want to give up on think back think back to when God did a thing for you if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, there was a moment when you said, I surrender. I, Jesus, I want you to be Lord of my life. I'm sorry for my sin. I accept you as my, as my substitute. And peace, peace came down on you in a way that you could never explain or even understand. You think back to those times that God has had that Red Sea experience with you. And then you think about how He's been leading you to the next obstacle. The next obstacle the Israelites had to get their feet wet. The very next obstacle, all the Israelites had to participate with it. So it goes in our Christian life. So it grows that as God grows us, we have an active part in what He is doing. I like what Joshua did when they came up out of the Jordan River. Before they went to Jericho, Joshua stopped and he built an altar right there at the, at the river. That altar was a remembrance for what God had done. When times get tough, that's what we need to do. We need to look back at the altar of our life and what God did that one time that, that Red Sea crossing that, that uh, Jordan River crossing or the Jericho walls came tumbling down because life's not always going to be easy but when you can think back on that it gives us strength for one more day and it reminds us that God is still He's active in our lives Joshua chapter 6 says only Rahab and all who were with her in her house were spared because she hid the messengers because she believed God and she believed in God she acted on what she believed. She actually got to be a part of this greater story. Now here's what's really, really cool about the story of Rahab. If you turn to the New Testament, the first book that you come to is Matthew. Matthew was a disciple of Jesus. He spent three years with Jesus. And after Jesus had, had been crucified, buried, and resurrected, ascended into heaven years later, Matthew wrote down his memories of his time with Jesus. But Matthew, 
Matthew was very, very insistent that his readers understand that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus was the third part of that covenant that God had given to Abraham, the blessing to the entire earth. And so Matthew walks his readers through and he takes them back to the Old Testament and he constantly reminds them that this is how Jesus fulfilled that prophecy. And the one prophecy that he starts off with right off the bat is the blessing that God said to Abraham that through you, through your descendants will come a blessing to the entire earth. And so here's how Matthew starts out his, his book. Matthew chapter 1, he says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, or rather the descendant of David, who was a descendant of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, and we start to fall asleep. Hezron was the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Benadab, of Benadab, of Nashton, Nashton, the father of Salmon, and Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Rahab got her name in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. It was through Rahab that God sent his ultimate blessing. People, land, blessing the entire earth through Rahab. A little nobody. She wasn't even a good person. But she believed God, she believed in God, and she acted on what she knew was right. And she had a part of their greater story. And that's what we're bringing to you tonight. You get to be a part of that greater story. You're created on purpose, for a purpose. You get to be a part of this greater story because although 66 books were written in 1,500 years by 40 different authors, the story is ongoing. God is still accomplishing His will on this earth and in this GNCC nation, and you get to be a part of it. Let me pray for you. God, thank you so much. For through the ages and through the pages, I learned so much. I'm so excited I get to share it with these people here. I pray, Lord, that you will just meet each of us where we are and show us what you want in our lives. I pray for those that haven't fully gone in, surrendered all to you to be obedient to what you tell us to do. I pray that you will just continue. No give up on us. Just keep working on us and continue to use me. And uh, I pray your blessings on all the people here. Keep us safe. May we meet again in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks for your attention. I know that was really hard tonight. We had a lot going on, but you guys were great. I really do enjoy spending time with you here and look forward to seeing you in two weeks, wherever we are. Have a great race.